Welcome to the Navigating Digital Payments podcast, brought to you by Worldline, bringing you the latest innovations, trends, and predictions about the future of payments. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Navigating Digital Payments podcast. I'm David Daly. I look after the scientific community here at Worldline, and I'm really excited because we've got a bonus episode today. We're joined by True Ledger who are one of the winners of the ePayments Challenge social media contest. So we've got an interview lined up with Jan Ellerbock, who is the co-founder and CEO of True Ledger, and we're going to be discussing this question of will digital contracts conquer the wider economy? Jan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Super. It's great to have you here too. And we are also joined today by Ina Kostiuk, um, who is our global partner manager for the uh, merchant services part of the Worldline business. Ina, great to have you here too. Hello, everybody. Very happy to join you. So I thought in this episode, it would be great, first of all, to understand a bit more about True Ledger, what you saw as the need for digital contracts. Um, then, Ina, you can give us some insight into what else is happening around this space in payments. Um, and then I'm also really interested to hear, Jan, from you, how you found the ePayments challenge and maybe also some of your thoughts about the um, the trends we're going to be seeing in the future. So perhaps we make a start then and, and I just ask you, what problem was it that you saw in the market that led you to set up True Ledger? Yes, the problem was actually relatively simple. Um, external employees such as consultants, IT developers, legal services, business process outsourcing and the like, today they make up for about 30% of a company's workforce and about 42% of the cost of labor. But we still deal with the inherent problem that the incentives of buyers and vendors are very often not aligned. Um, buyers uh, want to ultimately get a job well done at a fair price. Vendors have different KPIs, such as revenues, billability, profitability. And so the outcome, unfortunately, is a relationship which is very often defined more by the need to collaborate than actually by a true desire to do so. And we have seen a few uh, interviews with uh, uh, executives who show that actually 75% of them report low visibility in the quality and the progress of externals, and 41% of them even report major expand by externals. Companies typically react in these situations by tightening their governance and controls. But unfortunately, that only creates excessive administrative effort and nurtures the culture of distrust even further. And if you, in your view, is that something that's becoming even more challenging because companies are using externals more? I'm thinking a little bit of the kind of rise in the gig economy, but also, you know, it, it maybe used to be the, type, the case that people would have a job for life. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd work at one company, your career would be doing the same role, the same function for 50 years, and then you retire. And now I think the whole labor market is just not, not like that anymore, is it? Yes, uh, that is one trend that's absolutely important. The second trend is that companies all are in uh, a transformation phase. We live in the digital age. So in many cases, externals do bring competencies uh, to the table that they actually don't have themselves. So using external is no longer a choice. It's actually something you are required to do in order to succeed in your own core business. So we see market shares growing. We see overall uh, the, the, the markets growing of externals. And 
and uh, we also see uh, this this ratio of 30% to actually go up much rather than stabilize or go down and indeed it it's going to it's expected to within the next 3 to 5 year to get uh, up to 50% uh, of freelance and contractors and the companies and in a wide in a different field wow so it's it's grown a lot and it's going to continue to grow and i guess coming back to what you said you had about um governance and structures in organizations you know lots of those have been set up in a world that was totally different in terms of how we how we worked and how we how we brought people into the company to do things exactly and that's what we hear from providers that they say their pain point of getting to business dealings uh, with their customers especially the larger ones have become almost um, unbearable the amount of uh, information requests they have to fulfill how they need to structure their information into something that uh, the clients are, are ready to understand and digest is uh, becoming an administrative burden where some have even gone back to their uh, clients and have raised prices by by five percent simply for the reason uh, that they felt that the administrative effort that's being created on top of the actual collaboration is becoming unbearable and if if i can ask uh, so in that case as uh, a true ledger provides more service for the big company who is ser- who are searching for the special uh, skills people or to a separate company like HR recruiting company who are placing this high professional specialized people, professionals in such company and work on a like freelance project base, who who you're really targeting? So ultimately, we are here really for both parties. Um, we are a neutral platform. We manage the contractual relationship uh, on a day-to-day basis as a neutral instance. Uh, that's a very important uh, part of, of how we have designed the solution, how we think we can achieve uh, the targets uh, of, of a better collaboration. Uh, so it's really both. We see the uh, buyers who want to uh, have uh, more control and, and uh, more transparency and understand much better what's going on. But we also have vendors who uh, are actually trying to achieve the very same thing. They want to be convincing that they have uh, um, a good solution to their customers that their uh, way of working is actually uh, trustworthy and that uh, this bad feeling that I spoke about earlier is actually not uh, justified. So they have a strong interest as well. And another aspect is that we see uh, by now with uh, especially the larger uh, providers already ratios of 50% and more of their contracts containing uh, some sort of success-based component. So you uh, give a a discount or you uh, get an additional bonus in case your project does not go as planned or actually um, meets or exceeds targets. And and what that does is it uh, moves away from a classic billing mechanism where you say, I worked five hours and now you pay me for five hours to a billing where we said we had a project and we had a fantastic success here. And because of that, I participate in the success but if I fail, I'm also willing to sacrifice some of my own revenues and my own profitability. And this is something which our solution is extremely good in managing uh, and providing still perfect transparency to both sides and perfect accounting afterwards uh, by the end of uh, the collaboration. So that, I think, is really interesting, moving away from hours worked to more a shared pain or shared gain model. Can you say a bit more, Jan, about how your platform achieves that and supports that? 
So we have multiple uh, things that can be agreed uh, as part of, of uh, a, a engagement when you set it up. The simplest form would be to say, hey, uh, we have committed to do this uh, for a budget for 500,000. Now, like any consumption-based service, uh, this is where uh, smart contracting has its, its, its biggest uh, value proposition. We all know today that um, uh, many of these engagements are signed for 500,000, but the actual bill is 700,000 or a million. And uh, clients often get surprised by these developments. So, so one very simple way to show commitment as a vendor is to say, hey, I'm going to actually um, give you a discount uh, of, uh, I don't know, 25, 30% for every day hour I need to work in excess of this budget that we, that we committed to would be sufficient to achieve that target. That's a very simple mechanism. Uh, it is much more effective than, let's say, just putting a, a cost ceiling because that's something which uh, is uh, usually changes the discussion over price to a discussion over scope. But to just say, we don't know the outcome, there is risk out there, we commit to it, this is what we think it'll take. If it takes more, we share the pain of getting to the finish line, but the commitment is there for both sides to achieve it. And there's plenty of these mechanisms which, which can become increasingly more complex and increasingly more sophisticated. We have identified there's about 40 of them in total, and we are on track to supporting all 40 of them uh, as we continue to evolve uh, with our solution over the coming years. It seems that uh, we're getting to the point of uh, programmable money. I would like to go a bit uh, on a father of programmable money. Uh, so, and when is the smart contract been born? And actually, it's been uh, thanks to Vitaly Buterin, who been participating initially in the development of Bitcoin. And then he wanted to implement the kind of a smart of uh, smart contract or programmable money deduction already in Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency, but that was not really welcomed by his community. So that's why he decided to make Ethereum, and he launched it in 2014. So the it's kind of innovative. And um, how how do how would you comment it on European scale about use cases of smart contract? So you're absolutely right that uh, smart contracting generally is something that is uh, on the rise and uh, especially in any area where we have uh, usage-based scenarios. So we're at the point in time where we decide, uh, two partners decide to engage in uh, any sort of uh, commercial contracts and they don't know exactly yet what the usage of that contract will be, that smart contracting has just a tremendous effort. So. This is really, uh, I think, a proven use case by now as a, as a general one. And I think the nice thing uh, now of, of, of companies like ours, but certainly there are also others, is uh, to explore uh, use cases that have so far not been touched, uh, that are also consumption-based, that also have these risks uh, into the future, and uh, be able to uh, bring solutions uh, to those kind of uh, um, use cases and those kind of, of, of users to also uh, apply smart contracting in their particular uh, situation. And the benefits uh, speak for themselves, and I think that's really, uh, in my opinion, the, 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 the big uh, uh, success and the big promise that we see that 
that uh, smart contracting does have uh, an incredible value uh, for uh, both participants on either side uh, when it comes to all sorts of uh, additional um, things that they otherwise need to manage with a lot of effort. And uh, so I personally am convinced that this is the future and this is the uh, journey that we're going to see going forward. Use case by use case, case by case, we see the number of smart contracts being used uh, growing. And Jan, maybe just for the benefit of our listeners, could you give the, the the simplest, easiest to understand explanation of a smart contract for those who may not be um, so familiar with the term? Yes, a smart contract, or as um, we also people call it, a computed contract, uh, is ultimately a, a contractual agreement where the terms and conditions are fully machine defined and, and uh, a computer knows them perfectly deterministically, I think that's also very important. And then based on the subsequent transactions that are being recorded and uh, agreed as valid transactions, the uh, contract is able to generate an automatic um, account statement, invoice, call it, call it whatever you want to call it, uh, that ultimately says, based on the contract, based on the fulfillment that has happened, this is the amount that A owes to B. And that is something which is uh, uh, undisputed. It is transparent in real time. And uh, also, obviously, it allows to do any sort of uh, intermediate status uh, 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 forecast, projections, all these things that you often need in order to manage your commercials as a, as a company, whether it's as a buyer because you want to know what your costs are or as a vendor because you want to understand your revenues. Uh, so this is what uh, uh, computed contracting or smart contracting uh, does as, as functionality. It's, but, but I do find the whole there was a thanks as well, Jan, for the really clear explanation. But I think I, I don't did you call them codified contracts? But I think it's quite a, sometimes I think smart contracts seems a bit vague and well, what does that really mean? But thinking of them as executable contracts or codified contracts that can then automatically trigger things like payments is, is a, I think, a really clear way of, of understanding it. So, Jan, perhaps you can build a little bit on that thought about the payment part being fully automated. Yes, and in our recent discussions actually with Worldline uh, around the e-payments challenge and, and, and the partners, it became very obviously that the uh, B2B payments automation is still severely hindered by the prior step in the, in the value chain, which is invoice management. And that that step, step is still a huge struggle because invoices need to be validated as coming from a viable source, complying with contractual agreements, corresponding to services actually delivered, being no duplicate or fraud, and so on. And with computed contracting, we create invoices that are guaranteed to be correct, which means that the whole process will literally disappear and uh, payment handling can suddenly be fully automated. Um, a side aspect that we also looked at is the fact that liquidity and cash flow management becomes much easier because we can precisely forecast uh, projections on a daily basis long time before any invoices arrive. So here again is, a, is another great benefit uh, that uh, computer contracting has. I do want to, because you were part of the e-payments uh, challenge that Worldline ran at the end of January, I did just want to change the subject slightly and just get your feedback, your very brief thoughts on, on how that experience was for you and, and how you found that. 
Yes, and that was really an absolutely phenomenal experience. Um, and, and, and for me, certainly the most impressive takeaway um, was to see how serious and committed uh, Worldline is about being an innovation engine. So the focus was really entirely on collaborating with fintechs uh, to present new value propositions to Worldline's clients. And not in the distant future, you know, maybe in 10 years, but right now. And uh, so that uh, to see that and see how that unfolded and see how basically also this mindset was driven throughout the entire event, but also in the actions before and the actions after, for me uh, was was very inspiring. And and certainly we were very glad to be to be part of that uh, event. Jan, people are not going to believe that before we started recording, I said you don't have to give a pitch and you should give completely honest feedback. But I mean that is great to hear, and it does it reinforces my. Um, experience of the the culture we have at Worldline is that, that we are actually very interested to work with other companies and other partners to, particularly when we're looking at innovation and new solutions and, and, and new directions to take. So, that, I mean, that's obviously brilliant feedback to hear. And then perhaps just the final thing that I wanted to pick your brains about was um, future trends and what you think could be... Um, an important trend that maybe is not so looked at today, people are not paying attention to, but that, that could become important in the future? So personally, I think that is collaboration. Um, and let me let me explain to you a little bit what I what I mean by that. Um, we tend to market, you know, our solutions and our achievements a lot uh, for uh, being great in automation, in integration, in precision, which is obviously very important. Um, but in my op uh, opinion, the secret sauce for success is the fact that we humanize the collaboration and the communication in a way that people actually love to interact with the technology that we built for them. And they don't feel isolated or controlled by it. So uh, for us, when we designed True Ledger, that was a really important design principle, uh, which we thought, which we thoroughly applied really throughout uh, the entire solution. And we found many ways where we could substitute rather complex controlling processes, which much simpler steps that are more collaboration oriented. And so I'm a very strong believer that collaboration is a key differentiating factor going forward. Uh, I also believe of, of collaboration and uh, I'm really glad, Jan, you mentioned it because indeed mainly people talk about like technology or innovation or really complete change of business model. But um, I also believe that the future after the soft skills and the ability of people to, to connect, to understand each other, to uh, demonstrate empathy to agree to disagree and uh, this is uh, very well explained in one word as collaboration so thank you for that and it, it reminds me as well of a conversation I had a long time ago with um, someone who worked in the field of collaboration and he was he was saying you know collaboration is not um, one person does one thing and then they hand it over to another person who does something and then they hand it over to another person. And collaboration is not, I produce something and then someone else reviews and approves it. Collaboration is where you really have people together and the interactions between them generate something that wouldn't have appeared or materialised without the people really interacting together closely. And the other thing, which I think is great, Jana, how you say that you've you've integrated this into the way that you're building the product, is I think it's such a mistake to believe that collaboration is 
just a tool, uh, you know, just a kind of a software product, or you install Microsoft Teams or something, and instantly you have collaboration. And and lots of these things are called collaboration tools, but I think often there is there is more to it than that. Do you have any, I don't know, reflections on that? So so my reflections are that uh, when you design a solution, um, that as you basically go through um, the various options that you always have at hand in terms of how do I design process X, process Y, interface A, interface B, that in this moment, you take uh, consciously or unconsciously a lot of choices um, if you're if you're in the tech space on how you expect people to interact, how much you expect people to trust each other, how much uh, you expect people to talk to each other, how much you expect people to actually um, uh, uh, try to be uh, transparent and forthcoming versus maybe trying to hide things from you or, or stay away from, from uh, a, a direct uh, interaction. And the many choices that you can take in those details actually make a huge difference in what solutions you create and what kind of collaboration you ultimately also advertise with uh, the solutions you you put in place. And and here, I think uh, we have not spent enough time and energy in the past uh, focus, focusing on that. We have too much focused on making sure that things are right or making sure that things are properly controlled, um, creating often or sometimes solutions that have uh, maybe everything right from a solution perspective, but maybe are then not used uh, as much as they should have because it's just not fun to interact with them. It's just not a positive experience uh, to deal uh, with uh, with such a with such a tool. And so, so that's really something where I fully agree with you. Putting the tool in front of somebody does not automatically uh, create collaboration. It's always the connection between the technology and the human beings. But at the same time, when you design a tool uh, like Teams or like any other tool, uh, do you have already in mind that how do you, uh, in the details of the collaboration, how do you actually uh, allow and empower people uh, to deal with each other or not? Uh, to, to stay with Teams, it's a very simple example. Is the microphone open when everybody uh, connects or is the microphone closed and, uh, and a central person needs to let me into the meeting or do I trust that uh, uh, people come together uh, with the right intentions at the right point. And uh, obviously, there is different solutions for different scenarios, but those basic principles will immediately form a different culture using a collaboration tool as, a, as the example that you just gave. Super. So thanks, Jan. I, um, I think we've covered a lot of ground there. I, I guess if we come back to that question of will digital contracts conquer the wider economy, I think it seems like the answer it has a lot of potential. Clearly, it's more advanced in some sectors than others. And in some geographies, the use case is more obvious, as you were saying, Ina, than, than in others. Um, but it, it does seem like it could, I guess the, the trick is finding out where the benefits are of applying digital contracts and then doing it in a way that really makes it easy, intuitive and, and fast for companies and individuals to adopt. So, so I think that's been really interesting. Uh, Jan, really want to thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you, guys. It's been a great pleasure. Ina, it's been great to have you here too. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was an interesting discussion. Likewise. And just to let the listeners know, our next regular episode, we will be discussing with David Carney the topic of will digital currencies take over the world? 
Um, if you would like to contact us, propose other topics to discuss, uh, give us any feedback, then you can email us on ndp-podcast at worldline.com. Please do take a moment to subscribe and leave us a review. And finally, of course, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Navigating Digital Payments. Thank you for listening to the Navigating Digital Payments podcast, brought to you by Worldline. Join us next time to learn more about the latest innovations, trends and predictions for the future of payments. Thank you.